Hey everybody, you are tuned to Deep Dive, the All Music Books podcast, where we talk to authors of music books, bios, histories, and criticism. I'm your host, Steve J. Today's guest is Charles L. Hughes, the author of Country Soul, Making Music and Making Race in the American South. Welcome, Charles. Hey, thank you so much for having me. So let's get into your book. It's a great read. You open your book rather ingeniously, I might add, introducing a little-known song that totally sets the table for your book. Can you tell us about the song, There's a Redneck in the Soul Band? Yeah, absolutely. When I was researching the book, I had a conversation with someone who mentioned this song, and it really did kind of become you know, one of the kind of overarching symbolic centerpieces of the book, even though it's not as well known as many of the songs I talk about. It's by an artist named Lattimore, who is really, really great. um, And I think kind of underappreciated in terms of the broader culture, but really famous kind of late period Southern soul artist. And he puts out this song in the mid 1970s that is basically like play that funky music white boy, except two years earlier and specifically about a white musician who ends up playing in this soul band, right? And the Lattimore sings in the, you know, he tells a story of how he was, he went out to this club and there was this really funky band playing and he walked inside and he just couldn't believe his eyes and ears because there up on stage playing this soulful guitar uh, was this white guy who then later in the, in the last verse of the song uh, starts talking about how, you know, oh, I'm, every time I start playing this music, I just start to wonder about my family <laughs> It's just a really fascinating song. And to me, it really captured sort of the central paradox or tension at the core of the story I was trying to tell, which is this question of the relationship between country music and soul music, between black and white musicians in the American South in this period, when on the one hand, you had this incredible overlap between the two genres. But on the other hand, even by 1975, it was still immediately apparent to anybody listening to that song why it was so unexpected, right, that there would be this country boy in the soul band. And the final reason I chose it is because so much of the work I did in the book is about you know, musicians doing their job and how they were able to negotiate these really complicated racial politics through their work. And uh, I kind of love it that it's a song about musicians on the job. (laughs) So it was just perfect. And it was a great way to frame the book. And I also love it because it is a song that I I don't think is very well known, um, even among Lattimore's catalog. And so it was kind of cool to pull that out and spotlight. Yeah, it is a perfect uh, segue into the rest of the story. And as soon as I read that, I just settled down and dug deep. It is a very complicated story. In the late 60s and early 70s, prior to this song that we spoke about, you wrote Nothing Symbolized the Rift Between Blacks and Whites More Than Popular Music. Can you expand on that? Yeah. I mean, I think musical categories and genres in particular have always been utilized as symbols of racial difference. You know, when we think about even like blues and country and these genre categories that were developed by the recording industry, they were literally designed to catalog music by race. Uh, And as other scholars and writers have pointed out, this actually created these false distinctions Uh, within music about certain music being black, certain music being white, etc. 
And from that moment on, up right until now, we can use these musical categories as shorthand for racial difference. So when people talk about soul, talk about country, talk about urban music, right? Talk about all of these things. It's not even implicit most of the time. There's this sort of explicit understanding that we're not just talking about a certain set of musical characteristics or a certain kind of song. We are implying, if not directly stating, that we're thinking black or white or whatever. So musical genre in the in one way is uh, a great place for musicians to transgress racial lines. But from the beginning, it's been very, very important for a music industry that was for commercial benefit, uh, trying to create these distinctions. As the historian Carl Hagstrom Miller talks about, uh, they were segregating sound. Uh, and that has really maintained its relevance up to now. I think in the era of Lil Nas X, you know, it's not that difficult to understand how that still works. Musical categories are one way that we really, really talk about race, even when we claim we don't want to talk about race. All right. And there, there are a lot of reasons industry-wide why that happens, and we'll dig into those. Explain the country-soul triangle, because that sort of serves as yeah. ground zero for your book. When I started this, my initial interest was to kind of expand on the story that Peter Goralnik and a few other people had told, very powerful story about these integrated soul bands and the way that white musicians were so involved in soul music in Memphis and in Muscle Shoals particularly. But as I dug in more, I realized that there was an equally interesting story that went in the other direction in terms of black musicians being involved with country music or being active in these communities in ways that I thought were really interesting. And that's where Nashville came in. Those three cities, Memphis, Muscle Shoals, and Nashville, during this period, not only were they hugely successful and hugely important to the music industry, but they were grounded specifically in country and soul music and the hybrids between them, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, These cities were thought of as places where these overlaps were taking place, whether it was uh, integrated bands like Booker T and MGs or stylistic overlaps by any variety of artists. All three of these places kind of got this reputation. So it was a great place to look at the way that the music and the politics kind of intersected and interacted. And also that the three cities, often the musicians would travel between these places. There are countless examples in the book of musicians who recorded in all three cities or started in one and then moved to another. It was just this really uh, important area through which there was all of this musical interaction and all of these musicians creating an incredible wealth of popular music. Definitely, definitely. So one of the really cool things, I learned a lot from your book, but one of the cool things that I learned was that a a lot of African-Americans, as you mentioned, they were quite aware of country, but they were also really big fans. And you write that that's because that rather than rhythm or blues or soul music, country is what was played on the radio and the jukeboxes at the time. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the key reasons. I mean, I think that, you know, there are a lot of reasons why black folks like country music, and I think a lot of them have to do with just the reason why anybody likes country music. But um, but I think that, you know, one of the things that I think sometimes gets overlooked when we're thinking about the popularity of country music among black musicians is that it was much, much more likely that African-Americans living 
particularly in rural spaces that were getting only a few radio stations, it was much more likely that they were going to hear country uh, as opposed to R&B because there was just a greater opportunity in that period, uh, in the 40s and 50s particularly, uh, for, for country music or hillbilly music, right? right? Whether it was the Grand Ole Opry or the Barn Dance from Chicago or whatever. So, I mean, there are a lot of reasons. I think there were musical affinities uh, between blues and country, um, black musicians and black audiences, you know, liked all kinds of different sorts of music. But I, I do think it's important that, you know, a story that sometimes gets talked about as being a sign of racial progress, which it is that black folks have always liked country music. We also need to remember that part of the reason for that is a very, very real disparity in terms of what kind of music was getting on the radio uh, and who was getting to hear it. I mean, the reason why so many young white musicians in this story, like Steve Cropper in Memphis or others, you know, one of the reasons why they talk about hearing black music as such a kind of breakthrough was because it simply wasn't around as much in, in a, in a, on the radio or in the spaces they were in. And a lot of these records were sold via mail order in places like Randy's Record yes. Shop. And that allowed buyers to either skirt the musical color line or to ignore it. Or maybe they were unaware they just liked the song and they didn't see the album cover. Absolutely. And record companies were very aware of that. You know, I don't want to make it seem as though uh, there wasn't any kind of cross-racial buying or that there weren't record companies and artists who were you know, obscuring the race of the artist or kind of playing with those boundaries. They definitely were. Um, and yeah, the mail order catalogs are really important in part because a physical record store in this period would be connected to the racial politics and even the laws of the time. So yeah, the ability to kind of send away to Randy's or to another record mail order and, and get the records in the mail uh, was a great way to to not have to deal with the kind of social and cultural manifestations of a Jim Crow society. Wow. So enter Arthur Alexander in one of the all-time yeah. great songs in any genre. I love this song, You Better Move On. Mm, yeah. You pegged that song as kind of the birth of country soul. Yeah, and I mean, that's a little bit of a, you know, I, there. it's kind of like picking the first rock and roll right, record. Right. Like, you know, people could argue about it forever. One of the little tidbits about Alexander that I don't think I put in the book, but he is the only songwriter that I'm aware of who was covered by the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, and Bob Dylan. And I think that indicates just how amazing he was. So Alexander is is a really kind of an embodiment of the musical overlaps. He's an African-American guy who loved country music, but also was very well-versed in early 60s pop and R&B. And him literally walking through the door at Fame Studios in Muscle Shoals really sets off certainly the Muscle Shoals sound and Muscle Shoals' rise, but also really establishes a template for music that very, very intentionally is sort of blurring these stylistic boundaries. I mean, Alexander's songs, like You Better Move On, they sound country, they sound R&B, they sound pop, you know, they kind of sound like everything. And for the musicians who were there at Fame Studios, who were basically all white kids who loved rhythm and blues, they saw in Arthur Alexander both a way to break into the black music market, but also somebody who was kind of playing with the same stylistic hybrid that they were. So, yeah, I mean, it's hard to determine kind of the first record, but I really like him because particularly in those early days, he was thought of not only as a commercial spark plug, his hits launch fame studios, but also because everybody involved, including Arthur Alexander himself, understood that what he was doing was 
creating and working with a kind of hybrid between country and rhythm and blues that was tailor-made for the pop music market. Uh, and so his breakthrough very much symbolized the larger birth of this scene. So ultimately, his story, it's sort of a sign of the, of the, the ambivalence that goes along with this story, too. Speaking of Muscle Shoals, that's the city where Sam Phillips, the man who, quote-unquote, discovered right. Elvis, was from. <laughs> Sun Records originally recorded a lot, mostly African-American artists and rhythm and right. blues, right? That was almost entirely what they did, because Phillips's idea was he, he moved to Memphis and he saw there were all these black musicians. And it's a bit of a myth that nobody was recording black music in Memphis before Phillips. Um, that's actually not true. But he certainly recognized there was this huge wealth of talent, and he loved that music. So, yeah, he initially recorded black artists. But pretty soon he would uh, move to country, and it would be almost entirely white artists. Was that strictly an economic move? <laughs> this is a big – this is a $64,000 question. Um, yeah, so Elvis walks in the door. I mean, he had supposedly been looking for white artists who could do a sort of black-inspired music. You know, he – supposedly said, if I could find a white man with uh, who could sing like a black person, I could make a million dollars. So when Elvis Presley comes in, and it's actually his, it's Phillips's studio manager slash secretary, um, Marion Keisker, who first hears him and is sort of like, hey, Sam, this is, <laughs> this might be your guy. Mm. So yeah, he hears Elvis Presley, they figure out, you know, the famous Elvis story of he plays That's All Right Mama and Phillips has this epiphany. And then he shifts, yeah, to almost entirely white artists and white artists who do black influenced music. And it's, it's certainly, I think, an economic decision. He, he recognized that the market was bigger for white artists. He could make more money. I think part of it was this desire he had to try to demonstrate that segregation was a fallacy or that he, it, was, it was wrong. So he thought that by showing that white people could do black music and listen to it, that that would be part of it. The important thing there is that for a lot of black musicians that he'd worked with in Memphis, this was a real betrayal. This was a real, like, disappointment that Presley breaks through. And everybody kind of liked Elvis. They dug him. He was a weird, weird kid with a unique sound, right? <laughs> uh, but then all of a sudden, Phillips is just dumping all of his black artists because Memphis had long been a city that was known as a black musical city, going back to W.C. Handy and the Memphis Blues. It had an international reputation for black music. And then all of a sudden, with Elvis and Sun Studios, Sun Records, it has an international reputation, but it's for white people doing black music, right. right? And I think a lot of the soul generation, they are definitely kind of directly or indirectly responding to that through what they do. But yeah, that Phillips, is, it's a complicated story. Mm. I think he was both realistic, but he was also, you know, he took the money. <laughs> yeah, and one that you mentioned that was discarded by Sun Records is Rufus Thomas, who yeah. would go on to become, I think, Stack's first artist but a superstar yeah and and i i love Rufus thomas i've written about him elsewhere um yeah i mean he's an amazing figure yeah as a kid he's performing in like minstrel shows then he ends up on beale street performing there he becomes this kind of icon of beale street he is a host on wdia which is the first all-black radio station in the country he launches sun records then he launches stacks records with his hits um, and yeah, he ends up becoming really crucial not at Stax, which starts as a label trying to replicate the success of Elvis. They're trying to find white artists mm. to, to do rock and roll. And Thomas, along with a few others, including his daughter, Carla, shift that label towards black music. And thankfully, the 
the leadership of that label at the time, Jim Stewart and his sister Estelle Axton, the S T and A X and Stack, mm-hmm. recognized like, oh, maybe we should start working with the black artist yes. because this is this is different and this is great and we can sell this. Really key moment. And yeah, Rufus Thomas has never, I don't think, ever gotten the credit he really deserves. Now over in Nashville, which is one of the other points of the country triangle, yeah. there's a producer and guitar player, Chet Atkins, who you know, it was somewhat slicker. I guess maybe more Nashville than Memphis is a better way to say it. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> but he was making black identified music a key part of his hit making formula, too, wasn't he? Right. Absolutely. You know, the particularly in this period, right, the, the early 60s, late 50s, early 60s, Nashville is really trying to incorporate the sounds of pop music and jazz and R&B into what is thought of as country, in part because they wanted to demonstrate that they weren't a bunch of stereotypical, quote, hillbilly musicians, right? Which, again, is a stereotype and was never true of country music, uh, but they were dealing with it. Um, but also because they were all of a sudden facing a challenge from these rock and roll kids, mm-hmm. like the rockabilly cats from Memphis were starting to cut into their market share. Uh, so it was, again, a kind of cultural and economic decision. And so you begin to have in the early 60s in particular this deep incorporation of R&B and jazz into country music into what kind of becomes known as the Nashville sound that really, you know, lush, slick, but also really kind of emotive and um, sensual and, you know, smoky and, you know, that all of that stuff with people like Patsy Cline, who was a little earlier, but Eddie Arnold and, and any number of people. And yeah, Atkins was one of the key people. And he was another person who recognized that incorporating the sounds of black pop was a way to assert the creativity of Nashville's musicians, uh, but also to, to make more money. Yeah, and Buddy Killen, who played bass with the Grand Ole Opry and Make a Fortune in music yeah. publishing, he comes across as somewhat of a controversial figure because in your book, <laughs> yeah. he quotes uh, that he felt white musicians had skill and technique, while black musicians had more capacity to feel the song. And it, it certainly doesn't sound like he was alone in that thought. Oh, no, not at all. I mean, that notion that white folks have more skill and black folks have more feeling, I mean, that's one of the common tenets of how we thought about music and race. And of course it's not true and it's, you know, essentialist and often racist, (laughs) but, uh, you know, but yeah, Killen really did feel that. I mean, Killen, Killen was another one who came out of Muscle Shoals. He understood all of this music and he made those remarks or he sort of intimated that in relation to this guy, Joe Tex, who Killen had seen him, in a honky-tonk, singing country music. as an African-American guy. But he was also very much, you know, could sing James Brown-style stuff or Jackie Wilson, you know, another person who could do all this. And so Killen started working with Tex, but when he was trying to put a band together to make records with him, Killen believed that he needed to get some white musicians in there to mix with Tex's road band because he didn't feel the black musicians had enough technique. Um, And in fact, Tex had to fight him, apparently, to get some of his own guys in there, right? But, you know, Tex ends up becoming somebody who really, over the course of his career, does all kinds of different sort of soul and country soul stuff. 
He records in all three cities of the country, Soul Triangle. He has hits out of all of them. He does some kind of, you know, down-home preaching soul kind of stuff. He does things that are far more country-influenced. He does funk in the early 70s. Uh, he ends up his last hit's a disco hit. Like this guy <laughs> had such success, and is another person who I think has kind of fallen out of our story, even though he was hugely successful and a really great artist. But yeah, he he had to fight back against Killen's perceptions, just in the same way that other black musicians in this period had to kind of negotiate or find a way to strategize around these very widespread but very real. You know, these these were affecting the kind of creative and commercial direction of these really interesting artists. So, Killen is a very interesting character in a story full of very interesting <laughs> characters. Definitely. So we've mentioned the studios in you know Memphis, Alabama, and Nashville to some degree, and the musicians would play at each of them or, or travel to them. Yeah. Was there a rivalry at all between the different studios? <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The short version is definitely <laughs> yes. I think. There was a lot of collaboration or at least, you know, sharing of musicians. I think the three cities thought of themselves in one way as part of the same story. But, you know, all three of them are having huge success. And the three of them are kind of, you know, by the, particularly by the end of the decade, you know, you see a lot of things that I talk about in the book where like, you know, Nashville is kind of claiming that they are better than Memphis. Nashville hires uh, the first Muscle Shoals studio band is hired by a producer named Billy Sherrill, who had himself been in Muscle Shoals. Uh, so, like, Nashville's trying to jockey. Muscle Shoals has this, you know, they, they start trumpeting the Muscle Shoals sound as being the most authentic sound. The three of them really do talk back and forth to each other, even as there is this deep overlap on ground level between musicians and artists. And that has a lot to do with various different things. But one of the things I think is really important is that, again, thinking about the way that music is a shorthand, particularly Nashville and Memphis become kind of racially coded. And this is not just true of music either. Um, when people say Nashville, they, they have tended to mean white. Right. And when people have said Memphis, they've tended to mean black. And regardless of whether or not that's a legitimate simplification, this becomes really important, especially with music, because this kind of gets folded into this seeming battle where by the end of the 1960s, even as they're so, so connected on the level of who's making the music, country and soul get held up as these symbols of political division and even racial division in the late 60s. So Nashville and Memphis are kind of rivals in that way, both commercially but also culturally. Well, and then you have Alabama, and you write of an incident that takes place with Arthur Alexander and the Ku Klux Klan. Can you tell that story? I find that, you know, sad, ironic. I'm not sure what the right adjective is. This is sort of a great symbol of something that I think is really important to understand. So Arthur Alexander talks about running across these members of the Ku Klux Klan, and it was only when they realized that he was a, the singer whose songs were on the radio that they decided to let him be. And Alexander has talked about how, you know, sort of reflective that was of, of this kind of weird and sad situation where black artists, on the one hand, had to entertain white people, but on the other hand, were not given access to equal opportunity or equal treatment. And I think the other reason why that story is really important is that it is one of the most direct indications of something that I talk about throughout the book in different ways, which is that we have this sort of assumption 
this narrative has been created over the years that somehow white people listening to black music or white people being exposed to black music must mean that they are either racially progressive or it must mean that the old racial lines are falling down. We hear this all the time that, oh, these kids, white kids started listening to black music and they just changed, you know, that that meant that the walls of segregation were about to crumble. Hmm. And I don't think that's entirely untrue, but that Klan story is a great reminder that white folks, including the most explicitly racist white people, have always wanted to hear black music and have often demanded to hear black music. You know, there are stories like a couple I mentioned in the book of, you know, all these segregated colleges in the Southern United States or a lot of colleges that were essentially all white (laughs) in other parts of the country where, you know, a black student couldn't go to school there, but the, the students would demand that it be a black musician who entertained them. Right. And I think that's really important because in this moment when it seemed like music was signaling a racial breakthrough, and when it was in some ways, there was still this very, very real and longer-term ambivalence you know, or tragedy as it related to the way that cross-racial music did not equal racial justice, right. certainly. Right, and to put a fine point on it, Arthur Alexander says he was in very real personal danger. Uh, oh, yeah. Until they said, oh, wait, I like your song. And then it was like, okay, just keep it moving. Right, totally. And I mean, I think it's really, you know, this is a this is a carload of musicians going across the rural South uh, in the early 1960s. You know, if you see a, or an integrated carload of people in the early 1960s, um, they very well could be doing civil rights work, right? So... There is a vulnerability and a danger that is very much of that moment, too. You know, we spoke with Dwayne Allman's daughter, Galadriel, and she wrote a book about her dad. Oh, cool. When he was a session player over at Fame, she told a story about how the band would always take a lunch break, but the black artists had to stay behind. Yep. And Dwayne was afraid also because of his hair and his dress. Yep. He stayed behind, and that's how he and Wilson Pickett worked out the version of Hey Jude that became such a hit. Absolutely. And think, just think about that, right? Like, Wilson Pickett is the star, right? Wilson Pickett is the guy who was brought to the studio that they were working for, really. Right. Um, but he still has to wait. And they don't, they all go to lunch, right? Like, right, right. They didn't say, well, we're not going. Sometimes musicians did. I don't want to totally paint with too broad a brush, but. Yeah, and, you know, you write that the Memphis black musicians, they, they didn't necessarily view the white R&B players as, quote-unquote, freedom fighters. So, Well, and I, yeah, and I don't think that they did. That doesn't mean that there wasn't important stuff happening in the way that they could challenge. But I think that one of the central points I try to make in the book is that we've tried for a long time to kind of force, I think, the musicians into the civil rights frame, right? Mm-hmm. Which makes sense in some ways. But not, almost none of them were working in ways that they would have considered to be doing freedom-fighting work, right? That doesn't mean they weren't doing incredibly important stuff. But, you know, the re- the way that they talk about themselves, black musicians and white musicians, is as work. Right, it's just a job. Yeah, they were doing their job. And doing their job meant that they both had the opportunity but also were kind of required to work across racial lines. You know, their ability to play all this different kind of music was what put them in these spaces. And the fact that they did all these amazing things when civil rights protests are, and, you know, white supremacist violence is happening sometimes literally right down the street, 
the reason that they were able to do this, they talk about is that they were professionals, <laughs> you know, right. they, they knew what to do and they treated each other as such. doesn't mean they actually always did that. Uh, but I think that's a, that doesn't lessen their impact. Right. I think it actually, it puts them in a much more complicated, but I think also just as valuable framework in the civil rights period. Yeah. And you talk about throughout your book, and there are many voices, both black and white, that, you know, preach that that versatility in the studio and in the clubs equaled success. Because it had to, right? I mean, from from before anybody was making records at Stax or Sun or Fame and Muscle Shoals or wherever, most of these folks were playing in nightclubs or high school dances, Right, right? right? Or tent shows or whatever. And the audiences, whether they were black, white, mixed, whatever, wanted to hear all kinds of music. You know, all the musicians, it's almost across the board. Every musician will say, oh, you had to know how to play everything. I quote um, one musician in the book saying, you know, if you wanted to get a gig in Memphis, you better know how to play a polka, Hmm. right? So yeah, that versatility is what put them in the position. And that's why when they become so successful, when Booker T and the MGs becomes the house band at Stax, or when the Muscle Shoals rhythm section gets cooking, or when the Nashville musicians are working with all these different people, they're not just making records that are sort of soul or country. They're working with a variety of genres of artists, and they're bringing a distinctive flavor, but they're also saying like, hey, we, you know, we can go from Bob Dylan to Joe Tex to... Joan Baez to, you know, Conway Twitty to whatever. (laughs) And that's very connected to how they thought about what they were doing in terms of race. And, you know, the legendary record man, Jerry Wexler, would soon give this Memphis sound national and and even international legitimacy. And aside from the musicianship and the sound, he really believed in the social progress of the scene. He understood the possibilities and he believed in the way that black music, but also black musicians, which that's not right. Like it's not the same thing, the way that the presence of black musicians and the the notion of black music and putting that in conversation with white people and for white people. Yeah. He understood that as a vehicle for social progress. And that's why he works with all of these great R and B artists from Ray Charles forward. And in the early sixties, he starts to send artists to stacks because he sees that, both as the deep soul that he'd been craving, but also with an integrated band. So he saw that as perhaps the Memphis sound uh, being what he wanted to, uh, he saw the political and cultural value of that. And then throughout the the story, he ends up sending people to Muscle Shoals for the same reason. He sends folks to work with, you know, various different musicians because he's constantly searching for that music that will represent both the, you know, the good stuff, (laughs) right? The deep authentic stuff but also this this paradox of integrated soul music. So Stax Records, you mentioned them, and they really drew on the black community's talent, but they also drew a lot from another local label, High Records. Yeah. Did they steal the tagline, the Memphis Sound? Well, I don't know. I mention in my book that the earliest times that I saw somebody using the Memphis Sound as a commercial tagline was High Records. I think that is possible. I don't know that Stax did, um, and I'm not really, you know, my my, my goal wasn't to try to <laughs> make no, no. it that like, you know, but I, but yeah, and I think the point of that too is High Records, which ends up becoming really famous in the 70s for Al Green and Ann Peebles and the producer Willie Mitchell, you know, they are around very similar to Stax in the early 60s. They start as basically a kind of post Elvis 
rockabilly white artist label, and they end up over the course of a decade shifting more and more to rhythm and blues, particularly with the producer Willie Mitchell coming in. Um, but they too recognized from even years before the Al Green, the golden age in a sense of high, they were playing the same terrain. And it, it was a, it's an interesting thing to kind of look at those two labels together because they are very much working similar ground. And I also, that's another thing where high records in the sixties is just putting out some really amazing stuff, really funky, like, uh, Willie Mitchell's records are amazing. Yeah. The Bill Black combo. Bill Black had been Elvis's bass player, and then he just starts making these like really great little, little combo kind of funky R and B. Yeah. So Stax had Jerry Wexler and Atlantic Records behind them in the early days. So that <laughs> that was a big help too. And they had Booker T and the MGs, and they could play anything. And you mentioned them as kind of a model for interracial yep. bands, but. I find it interesting because originally they were more black with Steve Cropper, the guitar player, right. being the only white. And that would change. And, you know, they'd fired the, the bass player and replaced him with Duck Dunn, who was also white. And you seem to talk to some people who raised the question of that. Was it a move to have, you know, an equal number or make it more white? Yeah. I think there were many reasons. The original bass player, Louis Steinberg, there's a lot that, that went into it. Um, I talk about it a bit in the book, but I also think a lot of it is kind of hard to, you know, it's a mixture of factors. But I think one of the things that Steinberg, but also others have noted is that Duck Dunn had been Steve Cropper's friend from high school. There was this sense of him bringing in his guy. Uh, this had followed after the Marquis, who were one of the hit bands at Stacks early on had been basically fully interracial when they recorded the records. And then when they went on the road, it was an all white band. So the, what is striking to me about the Booker T and the MGs story, and actually Booker T Jones has written, just put out a really remarkable autobiography where he talks a bit about this. You know, the thing is, this was this supposedly this image of, of integration, this model, like, Oh, two white musicians, two black musicians, they're getting along integration works, civil rights is happening. And again, yes, (laughs) in many ways, yes. But also the story of Louis Steinberg, who plays on Green Onions, who plays on a lot of their early first recordings, and who was an incredibly talented bass player. I'm nothing against Duck Dunn. I mean, Duck Dunn's amazing. But, um, you know, he is fired, and and all of a sudden the, the image of the band is this perfectly kind of integrated combo. And Steinberg, at least, was very believed that that this might not have entirely been about race, but that it wasn't not about race. So that ambivalence to me is really important. It's not to say, you know, and and in his new book, I mean, Booker T. Jones, he's got some very critical things to say about the racial politics of Stax Records and specifically about Steve Cropper. It's again, it's part of that ambivalence that I I keep coming back to that, you know, that the story gets complicated. Speaking of complicated stories, there's a great story I hope you'll tell, and it's where workplace collaborations, of course, yeah. fraught with racial tensions. Sure. Can you tell the story about Aretha Franklin's 1967 session? Yeah. So this is thought of as like, and I mean, justifiably so, right? I mean, Aretha Franklin, who had been successful with Columbia Records, but she where she gets signed by Atlantic, Jerry Wexler, and, and he sends her down to Muscle Shoals because he he perceives and he guesses that this will be the perfect musical compliment. He's going to put this amazing gospel-trained singer, Aretha Franklin, next to just this funky Southern soul band. 
So he sends her to Fame Studios. And this is not, you know, the Wilson Pickett had made his hits there already. You know, Percy Sledge had worked there, Arthur Alexander, right? Like, this was far from the... Eddie James had just been there. But they make a couple mistakes. First of all, the band is all white, except the only black person there is Aretha Franklin, who's playing. People tell this story. It's like Rashomon. I mean, everybody's <laughs> version of this is kind of different. But... So they do I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You, right, the song. And obviously everybody's thrilled. And then they go to record the second song. One of the only times this happened, at least in recorded memory, they can't quite get it together. They're, nothing's really gelling. Do Right Woman, Do Right Man, which they end up, you know, it does end up becoming a record by, by Ruth Franklin. She's not really getting it. And then the white co-writer of the song, Dan Penn, who I talk about throughout the book, mm-hmm. who's really an amazing songwriter and producer and also singer. Dan Penn has this incredible kind of blue-eyed soul voice. Uh, He's really amazing. And he tells a story about how he would often be sent out, and he describes it very bluntly using, using a racial epithet. I think ironically, I don't think he's sincerely using it, but as basically him being sent out to tempt the N-words, meaning that he was going to show like, oh, the white boy can sing it like this. I got to up my game, which is a very interesting demonstration of how complicated all this is and how weirdly, weirdly the power dynamics work. So anyway, they do all this. They start to get it together, and then they take a break. And what ends up happening is there's this this confrontation between Ken Laxton, the white horn player, and Aretha Franklin's then-husband, Ted White. Ted White very, very openly advocate of black power, also apparently not a very good guy at all, was later revealed that he was very abusive to Aretha Franklin. Laxton and he get in a fight that involves racial slurs. There's also, some people say there was a sexual uh, inappropriate comment made towards Aretha Franklin. It's a fight. It breaks up. It ends up becoming even worse after the studio owner and producer Rick Hall gets involved. It's just a disaster. And Aretha Franklin leaves Muscle Shoals. She ends up recording most of her early Atlantic stuff in New York with Muscle Shoals and Memphis musicians. It's just, a, a to me, a microcosm of what how fragile this was, as you say, right. how fraught it was. But also the fact that, again, so many people have talked about this and they, who were there, and they all have different versions of this, slightly different, if not significantly. But everybody sort of agrees on the same thing. They all agree that no matter who you blame for this, no matter what you think or you remember happening, everybody agrees that what went wrong here was that everybody just didn't do their job. Right? Right, that they right. all there was this failure of professionalism, and it, it came and that allowed this kind of racial and gender dynamic, which was right under the surface the whole time anyway, allowed that to kind of come out and be exposed. And it's got real significant consequences. I mean, this is one of the things that seems to have led to the split between fame and Muscle Shoals Sound, where the musicians go form that studio. And yeah, I mean, Franklin never comes back. And it's it should have been the it should have been the absolute apotheosis of Jerry Wexler's dream. Right, right. Let's, let's use right, let's use soul music to break down the barriers, and it ended up demonstrating the limits of that. Yeah, I, I got to say, I wonder who's. Uh idea it was for anyone to tell Aretha how to sing, but that's another story. That is such a good point, because then it gets into the question of, well, what do you mean I'm not singing black enough? Or what do you mean I'm not singing soulful enough? 
And, you know, like, what does it mean? And Penn, Dan Penn is really perceptive about this, right? You know, he's a country boy. And so the idea, he understood that he would go out and, you know, with his overalls and sing this soul song, <laughs> right? He knew exactly what was at work there. Yeah. And he's a brilliant vocalist, but it's still very, very complicated. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. We're talking to Charles L. Hughes about his book, Country Soul, Making Music and Making Race in the American South. So the black power movement of the late 60s and 70s comes along, has a profound impact on not only the country, but on the music and the whole concept of black music. What was the effect on the country soul triangle of the black power movement? In one way, it was a great boon because the black power movement insisted and demanded that soul music be considered the kind of anthem and and the soundtrack of the movement. It asserted the genius of soul and the importance of soul as an idea. So it's great for soul music in that way. This is a period when Aretha Franklin and James Brown and other artists get kind of thought of as part, really key parts of the larger struggle. It also provided a challenge because one of the tenets of black power is ownership and self-determination. And black power organizations inside the record industry and outside the record industry looked at this situation where you had soul music and not just that it was being made with the involvement of white people, but that most of the people profiting off it or owning the studios or these things, most of them were white. So it creates these complicated cultural politics where you have the assertion by black power organizations that soul music is black music. And therefore, if it is black music, black folks should control it economically and creatively. So it both creates a real a boon, again, for these studios, particularly the soul studios. But it's also, you know, for the white folks involved with it and for the dynamics involved, it it creates some some kind of tense and transitional moments. Well, I think it was your term, but it was a very concise little three-word sentence, black meant green, which I think really succinctly, you know, sums up, you know, that piece anyway. Right. And of all the studios, it was Stacks owned, you know, as you mentioned, by two white folks. They went all in on the black power movement. Yeah. 
Yeah, and that was part of the reason, a large part of that actually, was the involvement of a new person who had been hired initially to work on sort of expanding their radio presence, but then had become essentially the president of the label by the late 60s, an African-American man named Al Bell, who was very consciously trying to push them towards black power, who understood soul music's connection to the black power movement and the broader civil rights struggle, and also the involvement of a few other African-American front office workers who helped craft a message at Stacks, like publicity director Deanie Parker, um, and also the artists, this new generation of artists like the Staple Singers and Isaac Hayes and others who are brought into Stacks, you know, are trying to articulate the sound of the moment. So, yeah, it is in some way ironic that it's the label that started as an all-white alternative to Sun Records um, that becomes this really black power label. But it also, I think, is indicative of the way that throughout the recording industry in this period, African-Americans were, if need be, forcing themselves into positions of leadership where they had not previously been. You mentioned ironies, and it's a sad irony, but it's, you know, the King assassination was obviously felt everywhere. that, That happened in Memphis. Right. And it happened at the Lorraine Motel, which you write is one yeah. of the few places where black and white musicians would hang out between you know sessions and gigs and everything. Yeah. And what was the impact on, on that w- within the studios? I mean, it was huge in one way, uh, particularly in Memphis. Sessions were canceled. Relationships between musicians were really fractured or tremendously damaged. Isaac Hayes said that he didn't want to, you know, he didn't want to talk to white people for a year after that. Um, But one thing I think is really important is that although the King assassination was incredibly significant, particularly in shifting stacks towards a more assertive kind of black power or more assertive sound and politics, one thing about the King assassination is that it became a very convenient excuse for the white folks involved in soul music to claim that somehow this is when everything fell apart. You hear this over and over again. You hear white musicians saying, oh, after the King assassination, Nothing was the same. We'd been, we'd all been friends. We hadn't seen race. We didn't think about it. And then King gets killed and, you know, black folks don't feel good about us anymore. And this changes everything. And that's simply not true. Not only can you look and see that just as many white folks were involved in stacks and in Muscle Shoals, um, in fact, in Muscle Shoals, it got even whiter for a while, at least beyond that, the fact is, is that there had always been complicated racial politics. There had always been black musicians voicing objections to the studios and to the way that this all worked. And so to blame the King assassination for it and to blame black power for it, to do that ironically, but perhaps not all that surprisingly, makes black folks the villains, right? Like all of a sudden the story right. becomes, oh, these black folks just weren't grateful anymore. Right. That's complete nonsense, and it's not backed up by the historical record. That's not to say that there weren't significant changes. That's not to say that individual white members of this of these communities didn't experience tension and, and you know maybe even some marginalization. But by doing that, that narrative about King, which again remains very strong in terms of King, the King assassination killing soul music in the South. When you do that, you both lessen the accomplishment of black musicians and overemphasize this supposedly golden period in before that um, and the and the involvement of these supposedly heroic whites who were just, you know, not thinking nobody was thinking about right. race until the black people did. And that's just simply not true. Well, I can't believe Rick Hall, who was the famed studio founder. Yeah. You know, I can't believe he said that Muscle Shoals musicians could quote 
take the white music and make it black. I, I can't imagine that went over well. Yeah. It, well, it went over great in the recording industry. Right, right. Because, like, you know, um, I mean, that that's actually one of the most honest comments in the sense that when Rick Hall and Muscle Shoals is trying to find a way forward and trying to build up his own profit margin, but also his prominence in the recording industry, he very consciously tries to go out, get white artists, and bring them to Muscle Shoals to make black-sounding material. And not just at fame, but also at Muscle Shoals sound. You know, there are still really important black soul musicians who are making records in Muscle Shoals throughout the 70s. Clarence Carter, Candy State, mm-hmm. Millie Jackson, several folks. But Muscle Shoals becomes primarily known for exactly what Rick Hall said. Right. In other words, whether it's the Rolling Stones or Paul Simon or the Osmond Brothers or Liza Minnelli or like there's just this huge swath of white artists who come to Muscle Shoals and make soul-influenced records. And the irony of this, of course, is that when this is happening and the artist roster at Muscle Shoals, the clients are getting whiter and whiter, Rick Hall, at least, actually has a mixed race studio band for the first Mm -hmm. time. So it makes it even more kind of ironic and complicated, which I know are two words we keep saying. But but yeah, I mean, Hall's comment absolutely, I'm sure, rubbed people the wrong way. But that's actually pretty much exactly what he tried to do. I was shocked to read the Osmond brothers recorded there. I mean, that, that was pretty controversial, wasn't it? Yeah, the Osmonds came to came to Muscle Shoals, they were just starting their kind of pop career, and they recorded this Jackson 5-influenced track called One Bad Apple. became a huge hit, very much reflective of the cross-racial music that was going on in Muscle Shoals. And then, yeah, they were right in the middle of a sort of black power era version of the larger conversation about cultural appropriation. They are debated and pilloried and defended, and it becomes a very controversial symbol, right? Like, just as Elvis had been just like other artists had been more recently. You know, the problem that folks had with the Osmonds was not so much the Osmonds, it was what they represented. The One Bad Apple became a thing, and you know, and I mean, it was a huge oh, hit huge. too, right? So it actually also helped recall, you know, get more business. Yeah. Now we're into the 70s, and it seems that country music, and just, you know, in our conversation, is, is a little bit out of the equation. Yeah. It's probably now more associated with white conservatism. Yeah, And you had a quote that really resonated with me, and it said, country music did not so much shift to the right as the right shifted to country. That was, I believe, I quoted from uh, the great Diane Pecknell. The new right, conservatism in the United States, starts to try to appeal to the sort of disaffected white folks who had they felt that they'd been left behind by the civil rights movement. And so they start to use country music because they are thinking of this as the soundtrack for that population. What happens in the late 60s is that's when you really start to get the association between conservative whiteness and country music. But that was not just always there. And in terms of the music being made, there's another odd juxtaposition, right, where you have this very, very openly conservative music, maybe not to the level that we would sometimes stereotype it as being, but you've got those open associations while you also have black folks involved in country music, white folks in country music who are incorporating black influences, and country becomes this sort of symbolic opposite of soul in conversations that go far beyond any musical context. 
interestingly, Outlaw Country and then Southern Rock and bands yeah. like the Almond Brothers Band would kind of provide some pushback to this new right music stance, right? Yeah. But yeah, in the 70s, this is when you get like Outlaw Country with Waylon and Willie and the boys, mm-hmm. right? You also get things like Southern Rock with the Almond Brothers and with others, uh, even Leonard Skinner. And then you get this third thing that I talk about, which is called swamp music or swamp rock. It's not quite as famous now as the other two, but people like Joe South or Leon Russell or Delaney and mm-hmm. Bonnie, you just get all of these alternative visions of whiteness, right? <laughs> you get all of these styles that are kind of trying to get their distance from country or mainstream country in part through their willingness to talk about race or to, you know, be associated with black music and to to offer a a different vision. I say in the book that there were two Georges that they were trying to separate themselves from. One was George Jones and one was George Wallace. But there's no question that they were thinking, like, how do we separate ourselves musically and culturally? But that being said, it's a pretty all white group. (laughs) You know, it was still very much a kind of whites only space. And it was talked about that way. It was like, let's listen to the music of these hip white people who have been redeemed by the sound of black music. It was marketed very much in that language. You mentioned Leonard Skinner, which is an interesting one. And they recorded at Muscle yeah. Souls, in the, obviously in their biggest hit, Sweet Home Alabama. There was yeah. backup singers, which included Mary Clayton. They were all yeah. black. And she famously sang on Gimme Shelter by the Stones. She did not like that song. No. <laughs> yeah, there's always been this question over whether Sweet Home Alabama is sincere or an anthem slash critique. You know, there's this line in Birmingham, they love the governor, and there's an argument to this day about whether the background singers are saying boo, 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 or not, or whether that even matters. But Clayton has talked about how she felt uncomfortable at the fact that she was a black woman singing backup on a white rock band song that was quite literally waving the flag for Alabama and that was talking about the governor in ways that she did not feel comfortable about. And I think that's a really, again, another great microcosm where the music is in one way trying to demonstrate the boundaries coming down, but there's still something troubling, I think. But on the other hand, I also, you know, they were waving the Confederate flag, right? right? And that whatever meaning they assigned to it, there's, you know, there's different meanings. And, um, so to me, that really captured the the way that that mid-70s moment is kind of billed as being progressive and a progressive alternative. And, you know, look, we got long hair now and we're talking about smoking weed and we also are critiquing the old South politics. And I think it's Clayton's presence in that song indicates why this is so problematic, but also really fascinating. Well, she said there was nothing sweet about Alabama. She said, you can hear our anger. Well, listen, this is a fascinating conversation. We could go all day. Let me ask you one more. You got it. What's the marital status now between country and soul these days? Oh, it's still very strong. Yeah, no, they've renewed their vows. You know, country and soul remain very close, particularly in the kind of, on the sort of Americana side of the fence, whether it's people like Chris Stapleton, Sturgill Simpson, or others who have kind of incorporated the sounds of soul music or whether it is young African-American artists, whether or not they would think of themselves as soul-influenced, pushing their way into country, Mm -hmm. right? But I think in the mainstream countryside, it's actually just as substantive. I think 
country and soul is one thing, but country and black pop music, country remains very much indebted to black pop. And I think the incorporation of hip hop influences and contemporary R&B influences by artists like Sam Hunt or Florida Georgia Line or any number of others, Jason Aldean, indicates that. I think the breakthroughs of artists like Kane Brown, uh, who's a mixed race guy, uh, who's got become a huge country star with a very hip hop influenced sound, um, and other black country hit makers has been a really great thing. I think the controversy over Lil Nas X shows how far we still have to go. Mm-hmm. I think the fact that, you know, we still are without to this day, we are without a significant long term hit maker in terms of black women, um, which is both about race and about the larger crisis of women not getting played on country radio or getting opportunities in country music. I think country and soul or country and black music remains just as vibrant, just as great, but also maybe just as complicated as it has ever been. But I will remain kind of cautiously optimistic, but also skeptical about whether we're at a finally at a moment where, you know, we're ready for the, the disparities and for the boundaries to come down because, you know, this is this is all in some way or another happened before. He is Charles L. Hughes. His book is Country Soul, Making Music and Making Race in the American South. It is a really great read. And thank you for joining us, Charles. Hey, thank you so much, Steve. It's been a pleasure. If you'd like to find out more about his book, please visit allmusicbooks.com. And you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive episodes there. I'd like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. Finally, a big shout out to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout this podcast. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all the major streaming services. Please support your local and independent musicians and writers. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning into Deep Dive, an all-music books podcast. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.